Okay, we're going to begin covering the topic on growing transplants. Several of you have mentioned that you that you've tried them and you're struggling to know how to grow good transplants. So we want to cover this area. There's nothing like growing your own baby plants to be able to set out at the appropriate time. So first of all, we'll talk a little bit about the kind of potting soil uh, that you need. And uh, you know, you you can potentially just buy potting soil, but um, oftentimes my brother and I have made our own potting soil, and um, we, I'll give you the formula of what we used in our potting soil, and you can uh, jot that down if you'd like. We used two parts of woods dirt. We used woods dirt that was in the places where, you know, there's uh, lots of trees, and we just rake back the leaves, and and then we would get uh, a t the few inches of topsoil that is in the woods, because there aren't any weed seeds there, and so you're not going to have to be fighting weed seeds in your in your transplants, and that's a great uh, benefit. And right on top of that woods dirt, there's leaf mold. Um, there's that uh, where the leaves have rotted and it's kind of has white uh, streaks in it there. So we use that kind of like peat moss. So we use one part of leaf mold and one part of sand and um, two to three parts of compost depending on what the quality of the compost is and and then um, we generally used one part rotten log. So this is if you're out in the boonies. So if you aren't, then you use one part peat moss, just regular peat moss. And, uh, and then we used a teaspoon of lime. This would be agricultural lime, um, not uh, hydrated lime, not the kind that they use on ball fields to mark them off. You don't want that. You want agricultural lime. So you would get that at a at a farm and feed store. Um, and we would do one teaspoon of lime for a gallon of soil that is mixed up. And 
the kind of uh, soil that this will create is soil that is uh, nice and uh, uh, light and will retain uh, good moisture. It will also have um, good drainage and it will have enough nutrients to provide a steady uh, supply of nutrients for the growing plants. Now for some of the transplants that are going to be in the um, in the flats for more than six weeks, say like peppers or um, some of the others, uh, you may need to feed them with uh, like compost uh, tea water watering or um, alf water where you've soaked some alfalfa pellets in the in the water that will give you uh, nitrogen uh, water that is high in nitrogen to help keep them growing well while they're in the flats so what I'm saying is that if you are growing them there for more than six weeks um, you're going to need to foliar feed them or water them with, uh, with some other nutrients. And this will also be, a, we want a kind of soil that is, will not be crusting over. We want it to, uh, if, you, if you make up soil and you're using a, something that has a fairly heavy clay base, it's gonna be crusting over. You don't want that. That's why we, we use uh, the topsoil that's out of the woods. We have the sand and uh, the peat moss that, and the compost that all uh, combined together will help the soil not to pack or crust over. And you want it to be the kind of soil that will not be uh, too dense so that it will have a low density so the root, it will be loose so the roots can, uh, can get their way in through the soil particles and be able to have a really nice root structure and it will be a lightweight soil. Okay. So, in, in the regular flats that you uh, buy, they uh, have the holes for good drainage. That's very important. Uh, if you use something else, uh, you need to make sure that you, you put holes in it so that it drains well. And here's some tomatoes that are being uh, 
planted with the, with the soil blocking method, but we're not going to go into all that. It's just one way that you can um, that you can do the plants. Um, here's the larger soil blocks, but um, starting out, it's easier to just uh, stick with a more straightforward approach. Um, and here we we hooked up a little vibrator to vibrate them in, but just on a home gardening basis, you don't really need that. Um, but the depth at which you plant them is very important. So you want to be just a general rule of thumb. Um, you'll, we generally will plant them up about three times the thickness of the seed will be the depth at which you'll plant them. So the very small seeds will be um, planted quite shallow. Um, and in your, uh, in your Johnny seed catalog, it will give you recommendations of uh, the depth at which you plant them. Um, and we have a handout for you also that will give you uh, the, the, the depth at which you should plant. And the temperature for germination um, and how many days it's going to uh, take for them to emerge. Um, and how many weeks you need to be planning before it will be time for them to be set out in the field. So that's very important. And just in a, in a general way, for the cabbage family, we usually will plan them to be in the in the greenhouse or um, under a grow light in your house for, um, for the cabbage family for um, four to six weeks and for um, melons like cantaloupe and watermelon. They're very fragile, but we will plan for them to be indoors for three to four weeks. If you let them go too long, they uh, can't tolerate the transplant shock when they get bigger and they'll conk out on you. So you want to transplant them uh, early on. And then for tomatoes, and uh, it'll be about six weeks that you have them indoors for um, peppers, it's about eight to 10 weeks. Anyway, we'll have that all on a handout here for you. So you plant them according to the planting rates that it's given on this sheet here, and then you wanna cover them with fine soil, firm the soil slightly, and um, 
and then make sure they're well watered. Um, <clears throat> there are some flower seeds that, um, that need light to germinate, but um, most of the seeds um, are, uh, need to be covered. When you, when you water the plants, uh, when you water the flats, you need to be careful not, I generally like to have my soil moist before I, I plant. Not wet, but a little bit moist. That way you already have moisture in the, in the soil. And to go ahead and uh, moisten it a little bit more, it will not float the seeds out. But if you start with just powdery dry soil um, and then you, you plaster them with water, you can float those little seeds out. And so you want to be careful not to do that. And then you can cover them uh, with, uh, with plastic to prevent them from drying, drying out too much and remove the plastic as soon as the seedlings emerge. Um, and then one of the most important things is to, to, to be aware that you need to have good airflow uh, in your growing area because when the seedlings are, are very young, there's a potential for what is called uh, damping off, a fungal uh, disease that will, will hit the plant uh, right uh, at the soil surface and it'll just, boom, keel over. And so you'll have that problem when they're being overwatered and where there's no air circulation. And so if it's, if it's a damp, uh, if your greenhouse is very damp and hot and you don't have any fans moving the air, then is when you'll have problem with damping off. So generally, our germinating temperature will be uh, between 70 and 75 um, until they're germinated. And uh, after that, uh, the temperature can be a little bit lower to 65 to 70 during the day. And night temperature can be 60 to 65. By having the temperatures uh, a little on the cooler side, it will help to develop uh, at night, it will help to develop stockier plants. You'll have ones that have a nice, healthy, thick stem and a really good root system. So, um, and having uh, plenty of light uh, is essential, otherwise you'll end up with leggy plants if they're having to try to stretch to get to the light. 
So, um, here we're transplanting them from, from the little um, plug trays into the uh, two inch cells. And we do that uh, at the time that the transplant is getting its first true leaves. There are the other leaves, and then when it's getting its first true leaves, that's when we'll transplant it. By doing this uh, transplanting, having an extra transplanting from the little plug tray into a larger pot, it helps to strengthen the root system. So you're getting a stronger plant. <clears throat> and like with lettuce, um, we'll, we'll start that about four weeks before, um, before setting it out. And if you're growing them inside under a grow light, then on nice days you can set them out where they're exposed to full sun and that will make them hardier and help prepare them for uh, when you do set them out in the garden. So they'll be, uh, they'll be acclimatized to the wind and, um, and to more direct sun. You can also uh, direct seed them into, into the uh, two inch cells and then, um, and then thin them out um, so that you just have one per cell. Um, but I, you, if, if you do that, then you want to make sure that you start out by having enough seeds in there so you're not going to end up with a lot of blank, uh, blank spaces. And so here is uh, just growing them indoors under a grow light and that does work very well. Um, they, they do well under that uh, condition. Um, if you start them and then transplant them, it will just help uh, develop the root system a little bit more. And you can, uh, you can also plant them just a little bit deeper uh, so that they're not, uh, they're not quite as leggy. You can... Uh, bigger pot. Eight inch pot. <laughs> Yeah, so the question was uh, whether you, if you can um, start them and should start them in smaller pots if you're going to end up in a four or eight inch pot. And, and that's a good idea. Yes, uh, another question? We generally just got our sand along a river stream, a, a creek. Um, 
Yeah, we're country boys, so I don't know for the where you'd go to get it if you live in the city, but uh, there's generally some creek around that you can... It seems like when you go to a cement place, they have yeah. sand and coarse sand. The cement place should have some sand, too. Yes? Okay. Uh, the question was about the... Um, the soil from the woods, there's, uh, there's the, you rake the leaves back <clears throat> and then the next thing under the leaves will be the leaf mold. And then under the leaf mold will be your topsoil. I'm sorry, I, I did have those reversed when I described it, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Does it matter what kind of trees uh, are above that soil and whether you would want to take soil from under walnut trees? Absolutely not. <laughs> and you wouldn't want to take it from under pine trees either because um, it's going to be very acidic. So you would want to take it from under deciduous uh, woods, but not under um, evergreens. Cedars, no. Yeah, oak, that would be great. Sure. Um, one part of, of leaf mold, two parts of wood dirt, or you could use, <clears throat> you could just use good soil uh, good topsoil. The main thing you will have to deal with is the potential weed seeds, you know. And one way that you could deal with that would be to uh, put it under black plastic for uh, for a period of time ahead of time, where it will uh, be able to heat up and uh, germinate the weed seeds and kill them. Yeah. Um, so, and then one part sand, um, two to three parts of compost, depending on the quality of it, um, and then one part peat moss and one teaspoon of lime uh, per gallon of soil mix. This would be well-rotted compost. Oh, yeah. Uh, composting, we're going to cover that uh, this afternoon. Yes? What do, you, what do you think of the uh, compost that the cities are making up? Yeah. Um, what do I think of the compost the cities are making? Um, yeah, you don't know what all kinds of chemicals are in there. And uh, so it's by, I really don't like to use them. Uh, I like to uh, make my own. And uh, Steve will show us how uh, a way that, that won't, uh, won't wipe you out doing it. Okay, great. Thanks for the uh, potting soil mix. Well, um, you know, as teenagers uh, just learning gardening, 
my brother and I had a great time going out. We were in the hills of West Virginia, going out and um, rounding up our own uh, elements for the potting soil. You know, we had a little a little pony horse and a and a, a, a skid uh, sled that we drug behind him and uh, we'd go out there and round up whatever we needed back in the hills and, and bring it out. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. From the sea, sand from the sea. Well, I don't think that would be the best because it would be very high in salt and salt can really mess up your chemistry. Um, and, uh, you know, just one illustration of that, when I, in West Virginia, we used sheep manure and had a really great results with sheep manure. <clears throat> so when I moved to Southern Utah on the Navajo reservation, we had lots of our neighbors uh, who were raising sheep. They, sheep is a very important part of their culture. And so I thought, well, great, I'll get, I'll get sheep manure. But the way that they have their sheep is in these open pens and a lot of sun, a lot of wind, and all the nitrogen gets taken away and you end up with a high sodium manure that doesn't have um, hardly any nitrogen in it. And I loaded up a portion of my garden with that and planted and things didn't look right. And so I went back and did a soil sample and my uh, salt level was really high and sodium. And so I just took a backhoe and push that all out of the way and start it over again. So, um, but I kind of am trying to get away from a lot of animal manures because you oftentimes get a lot of hormones that, and chemicals that you don't really want in your soil, so. Okay, any other question? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, they, you know, there is some use of, of, uh, of sea salt too, but, um, but it, it's very easy for your sodium levels to get too high and it's hard to get rid of once it's too high and it messes up, it uh, binds other nutrients so that things don't work well. It starts messing you up real quick. So you have to be careful about not getting too much. Okay. Um, a couple things on transplanting. When you're transplanting the, um, the plants that you've grown indoors, outdoors, <clears throat> Um, you, you want to harden them off a little bit beforehand if 
if at all possible. That would be setting them out where they're exposed to the sun and the wind um, ahead of time. Um, and that will be uh, giving them a little bit of gradual stress. Um, and you can also uh, give them a little bit less water. You know, wait till you uh, see signs of them uh, wilting. Um, that will also help harden them off. After transplanting, it's, uh, it's very important the time of day that you transplant. You want to transplant in the, in the evening so that they will have the nighttime to recuperate. And it's essential that they get well watered immediately after you plant. You don't want to uh, go and lay all the plants out down the row and then come back and, and stick them in. They need to go directly from the pot into the soil and be watered before you go on to the next plant. It's very, very important. Um, another way that you can grow transplants is in a uh, cold frame or a hotbed. Um, and with uh, panes of glass, have it on the south side of the house, and uh, that, that works very well, especially for the, the plants that um, are the uh, frost-hardy plants or the, the cool-weather crops, the cabbage family. Uh, those do very well in that kind of a setting. Um, it's definitely best for you to have a, a, a well and a, um, a source of, of natural water. Um, and the, the harder water would be better than using a softening, yeah. What about mixing the water with, oh, what about water that's high in sulfur? Um, I, I haven't really experienced that being a problem. Um, so I, I don't have a good good answer for you on that. Yes? For those of us that don't have a well, uh, is, is there a good quality water filters and a uh, right way to remineralize that water in order so it won't damage the, the soil? Mm -hmm. uh, what if you are using city water? Yeah. Um, Some of us in the country don't have a well, but we're in the country using city water. So mm -hmm. we'll, yeah. Um, yeah, I have friends that are having to use city water all the time um, and grow, you know, some really nice gardens. Um, I guess if, if I was going to try to do something with it, um, it might be to put, put together my own a charcoal filter or something, if I really felt... Distiller or water distiller? Or? Um, 
cost a lot of money to distill that much water. Uh, well, no, I wasn't thinking of distilling it, but um, I've just I've built uh, charcoal filters where I run the water through, just taking like a a four-inch PVC uh, section of pipe, and uh, and having charcoal that I made myself from uh, from oak hardwood, crush it and uh, put it in a sock and then put it inside the charcoal inside the PVC and have have it where the water comes in one side and goes out the other. And charcoal has a tremendous capacity to absorb things that are potentially toxic. How do you activate the charcoal? You use steam, is that true? Yeah, that's a special process uh, to activate the charcoal, but it's really not necessary. It does improve the capacity of the charcoal to adsorb toxins, but even unactivated charcoal is very, very powerful. So you don't have to worry about that. As far as the question was, uh, what can you use to uh, as a base for making teas and suggestion of using comfrey? That's excellent. Yeah. Okay. What did she say? Uh, she was mentioning several other uh, less common plants that are excellent to use as teas. Comfrey, I think, is a great one because it's very prolific, and it uh, you know when you get one plant, uh, they will multiply, and uh, and really uh, you'll have an abundance you could use for for that. Okay, um, so here we have uh, some things on uh, irrigation. Um, setting up a drip irrigation. Drip irrigation requires a, um, a low pressure. So you have a pressure uh, regulator um, and then it also is important to have a filter in the line so that you won't end up plugging up your little um, emitters uh, in the drip line over a period of time. So between those two gauges, there is a, uh, an inline filter that filters the water coming in and prevents uh, little particles from getting into the lines that will plug it up and make it so it's not workable. Yes? Do you use the uh, standard 12 inch uh, spacing? spacing uh -huh. pre, pre, uh, yeah. So, what spacing uh, would we use? You can use 8 inch, 12 inch, um, whichever you prefer. But 12 inch works okay for rows. 12 inch works fine. It partly depends on the type of soil you have, how, uh, how well it lends itself to absorbing and wicking the water out. So uh, it mainly will depend on your type of soil. Um, if it's really sandy, it's not going to wick as well as if it has more organic matter in it. So here you can see um, the 
uh, having a valve uh, at the ends of the lines, then you can control them individually, works really well. They're quite economical. And here having a, a pressure gauge at the, uh, right there at the header line um, can help you to see if, if you uh, have it set up so that your, your pressure is, is, is what it needs to be. Um, for a drip, it needs to run about 15 to 20 pounds. And uh, so it's, it's important to have a little gauge there to, to help make sure you're at that uh, level. And uh, a few other th things on uh, tillage tools. Um, this is a, a, a stirrup hoe that, uh, or a wheel hoe that has a, uh, a stirrup-like blade that um, you can get them different widths. Um, and uh, we, we just made this one. You can also buy them, but they're easy to make. Um, <clears throat> and for the uh, cultivation in the pathway, um, a 12-inch 12, a 12 uh, blade is nice. Um, for in the row, um, they have uh, narrower ones that work well. And here you can see the blade a little better. And it just, um, it's just like a knife and it undercuts the roots. So it, uh, it's really, it just, you just slice along and you can go along at a good clip and it just makes it really easy. Yeah, it undercuts the weed roots and then uh, it just will just chop the root right off. What is that called? It's called a wheel hoe. Wheel hoe? Uh-huh. They, uh, they have them in the back of the Johnny's seed catalog. And here are some other uh, tillage tools. Uh, just your conventional old-style uh, hoe. Uh, one of the problems with it, uh, in the finer, more delicate uh, vegetables, it tends to cover them with soil. Now, if you're wanting to hill up corn or um, hill, hill potatoes, then it works fine. Um, but if you're wanting to uh, come alongside uh, lettuce, then this uh, Collier hoe here works really nice. It, it goes back um, underneath the lettuce leaves, clips uh, weeds that are trying to sneak up. Um, and the, the stirrup hoe uh, next to it um, is a great hoe for um, cultivating between rows of beets that you have in beds. And then um, the hoe there on the right 
is, um, is one that you might use for, um, for garlic or for onions um, or for uh, spinach that has a close uh, spacing where you need to, to get in there. So these, um, these different kinds of hand hose are on page 220 of the Johnny Seed Catalog. So even when the plants are really small, you can come, uh, you can come real close to them and not roll any dirt over onto the plant. That's a really nice thing about it. Another tool that's really nice is the broad fork. Um, deep aeration of the soil is really important and um, helping to also maintain good drainage in your soil. And so this broad fork <coughs> will help uh, you be able to uh, loosen up the soil, uh, develop uh, and maintain good drainage and aeration without having to go in and whiz the soil up with a rototiller. And so uh, it's, it's really helpful. And it's very easy to use, um, you, you just, kind of crank back on it and uh, it, it does the job. Is there a fork, like fork teeth going into the ground? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, it has uh, uh, tines about every three inches that um, go down about uh, 12 or 14 inches. So it maintains, keeps, uh, enables you to have good drainage. So here's a little um, model of the narrow Troy belt um, that would, works well for a home gardener. Um, and here, I believe this is uh, clover that uh, is still young that's being incorporated into a bed. Okay, what, uh, what I use for marking off my, ro my um, rows in my 30 inch beds, I just use a rake-like um, device that I've just made out of wood with, um, with little um, kind of like stakes on the bottom of it for whatever spacing I want my uh, rows to be at. Or you can use a, a landscape uh, rake um, and, uh, and put a, uh, a plastic peg on the uh, tines that you, at the spacing that you need. And that also will work real well in marking off the rows. And that just, you just go down the bed, marks it off. You can even go crosswise if you want uh, to, uh, to mark it both ways. Okay, any, any questions? Was that your greenhouse? Um, yeah, that was one that we had uh, when we were 
near Loveland, Colorado. Yeah. No, and this recent, this one in this slide was uh, at my brother's place in West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, so what was the question? About tilling. Are oh, you tilling. Just till the row you're going to be using? Uh-huh. Or just till the whole area? Okay. Um, the question is about tilling. Uh, do you till the whole area or just just the rows? Um, I, I have permanent beds for the things that I'm going to grow in beds. And um, in between the rows, I may till that once a year. But in my beds, that's where I uh, will generally till them like in the spring and in the fall. The rest of the time, I just uh, do it by hand in a small garden. With, with the um, stirrup hoe, you can cover a lot of ground, uh, either with the, um, the wheel hoe or with just the hand uh, hoe, and it doesn't take that much energy because it's just undercutting the roots. It's not like chopping weeds. Um, the other thing is, I never wait until I can look out my kitchen window and see the weeds. I want to go after them when I have to get down on my knees to see the weeds. And that is, that's the way to keep them under control. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah. Okay, when we start the garden, do we till everywhere? Uh, I generally do, yes. Um, what do we use for tillage? It uh, depends on what size area. Um, if it's just a postage stamp garden, <clears throat> then I will often just do it with a shovel, uh, turning it by hand. Um, if it's... Uh, you know, larger, you know, 60 by 100 or something like that. It's really nice to have, have a, a rototiller. It's a lot of, it can be quite a bit of work. So I, I always encourage in your planning, uh, starting out new, it's better to do small and do it really well and um, uh, develop the fertility of that soil so that your small plot can be very um, productive. And you, you'll save yourself a lot of work rather than trying to do too big an area. And you can learn on that smaller plot and then you can expand also, <clears throat> as you have time to build the fertility of a larger area, um, you can expand. It's, it, it's counterproductive to, to do too large an area without it being built, the fertility being built up. And so Steve is going to be covering uh, building uh, the fertility of the soil. Okay, one more and we're going to wrap it up. I'm 
just talking about. You know, whizzing the soil can be destructive to um, to the um, living organisms in the soil, and uh, disruptive to the soil layers too. So I, I try to do that as little as possible. Um, it also burns up your organic matter faster, especially when you live in the more uh, hot parts of the country. Um, the more you're uh, tilling, the faster it's going to burn up your organic matter. Okay, it's time for a break, and we'll be back in 15 minutes. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.